I'm Adam Coleman. Welcome back to the Cosmic Library, the show where rascally heroes can bounce between spiritual traditions. This season, called The Hall of the Monkey King, we're following tangents prompted by the classic 16th century Chinese novel, Journey to the West, which in one way is a straightforward, if fantastical story about a monk's journey across China for Buddhist scriptures. He's aided by some superpowered friends, and here it gets a little less straightforward and historical. Among those friends is the Monkey King, a comic action hero. The spiritual meanings encountered in the book come from sources including Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, and the mischievous Monkey King kind of fights and pranks his way through it all. Spirituality is meaningful in the book. It's, it's not just a backdrop for jokes, exactly, but it's approached with a sense of humor. The book suggests something other than a simple rejection of spirituality or simple reverence, that something is closer to a kind of funny, imaginative, restless mood about you know, you know, almost everything. Let's follow the Monkey King, our guide for now in the mischief that surpasses nihilism and mundane belief. This here is a scene where the Buddhist monk Tripitaka gets rescued by the rascally Monkey King, and then they find themselves in the world of divine spirits in the circle of the Bodhisattva Guanyin. Here's Julia Lovell, reading from her translation titled Monkey King. It was the dead of winter. A freezing north wind blew across the ice-coated landscape over hanging cliffs, rocky precipices and rugged mountain paths. One day, while crossing Serpent's Coil Mountain, the travellers reached the bank of a stream. Just as Monkey was wondering aloud whether they had reached the famous Brook of Eagle's Sorrow, a dragon surged out of the water and made for Tripitaka. Monkey managed to drag Tripitaka to safety, but the dragon swallowed the horse and harness whole and disappeared back into the stream. After settling Tripitaka on safe high ground, Monkey returned to discover the bag still on the bank, but the horse gone. A quick aerial reconnaissance confirmed that the horse had entirely vanished. I'm sure that dragon ate the horse, he concluded, upon returning to solid ground. Tripitaka crumpled instantly, fountaining tears. A thousand mountains and myriad rivers lie ahead. How can I go on? Misery and woe! Monkey found his master's terror extremely irritating. Calm down, for goodness sake. I'll have a word with that dragon to give us our horse back. Don't leave me, Tripitaka employed. What if he suddenly appears and snatches me? You are totally useless, Monkey fulminated. First you want a horse, then you won't let me fetch you one. Why don't we just sit here watching our bags till we get old and die? Don't be so tetchy, Monkey, a chorus of voices called from above. And do stop blubbing, Tripitaka. We are spirits sent by Guan Yin to offer you secret protection. Julia Lovell explains how this revises the story of the historical Xuanzang, on whom Tripitaka is based. Because Monkey is such a big character, as a result, Tripitaka comes off rather badly. So the historical Tripitaka was this um, incredibly uh, capable and resilient individual who had to you know, make this journey from China to India without any 
magical monkey assistance, but so that the novel can showcase and foreground monkeys' extraordinary talents, Tripitaka in the novel becomes this you know, rather piously useless character, you know, always bursting into tears at the slightest discomfort, always getting into terrible predicaments, almost being, you know, sort of sautéed and steamed by all these monsters and always needing a monkey to uh, fetch him food and drink and, of course, to rescue him. So who was the historical Xuanzang, whose journey for scriptures provides some of the story of Journey to the West? The novel sprang from a much older set of legends about a real historical character who lived around 600 to 664 CE as a subject of the Tang Empire in China. Now, the Tang is one of the great eras of Chinese imperial expansion when the empire extends from the edge of Persia in the northwest to the frontier with modern Korea in the northeast. Taizong, the emperor on the throne in Tripitaka's time, um, he's the the, the the character who in the novel dispatches Tripitaka off to India to fetch the sutras. So Taizong is the vigorous, ruthless ruler who pushes the frontiers of uh, his empire out so far. And in the decades that follow this, the Tang Empire is awash with cosmopolitan products and ideas. And still today in China, the Tang is celebrated as this um, period of phenomenal cosmopolitan flourishing of the uh, empire and ideas throughout China. And the monk's actual journey west, the journey of Xuanzang or Tripitaka, represents some of that cosmopolitanism. There's no doubt that he was a remarkable man. He took holy orders at the age of 12. He received a Chinese Buddhist education and he learnt Sanskrit, but he felt limited by, impatient with errors and omissions in the translations of Buddhist scriptures that had so far reached China. In the late 620s, Tripitaka decided to travel to India himself and bring back to China original Buddhist texts to translate into Chinese. And interestingly, the real Tripitaka broke an imperial prohibition against travel to the West, and he set off across the deserts and mountains of the old Silk Road routes towards India. And this was a very tough, very dangerous journey, both physically and politically. There were many kingdoms, many natural obstacles to pass through. But after four years, Tripitaka reached India and he spent the next 15 or so years there studying religion and philosophy. Then in 645, returned to China, loaded with Buddhist manuscripts. Fortunately, by that point, the real historical Tang Emperor, Taizong, was a supporter of Buddhism. He pardoned Tripitaka for leaving China in the first place. Tripitaka spent his last two decades translating the scriptures he'd brought back. Now, as you'd imagine with such a remarkable person, myths about Tripitaka and his journey began even during his lifetime. And in the next few centuries, these myths were adapted by storytellers in increasingly outlandish ways. The real Tripitaka wrote a rather down-to-earth, matter-of-fact travelogue 
describing the kingdoms, the flora and fauna that he met along the way to India. But uh, writers of fiction and drama turned his journey into mythology and fantasy. And by the 13th century, these retellings had added a monkey disciple who was there to help Tripitaka out of all sorts of tight corners. And over the next 300 years, this character would come to dominate the narrative and the 100-chapter version of Journey to the West completes this process. There's no scholarly consensus, though, on the inspiration for this new hero, for, for, for Monkey. One interpretation traces him back to a lecherous white ape who appears in Chinese folktales. Another argues that a Monkey may have evolved from Hanuman, the companion of Rama, in Hindu mythology. Again, that's one of those unanswerable questions. Journey to the West story, again, does take something from a historical journey. And that journey happened during that dynasty known for its cosmopolitanism, the Tang Dynasty. Kaiser Guo, from whom you'll hear now, was a founding member of the major Chinese heavy metal band named Tang Dynasty. It was founded in the late 1980s. I asked him about the significance of that name. So as it happens, I'm the person who actually came up with the name Tang Dynasty for the band. And it, you know, definitely had, it was a deliberate choice. I, I, I had thought about a lot of different names. I guess the, the conundrum that we were facing at that moment was that we were trying to popularize a genre of music that was just wholly alien to China. It was like there couldn't possibly be something that was further away from sort of, you know, mainstream Chinese tastes at the time. Uh, so I thought, you know, to smuggle something in like that, something that's that was foreign and entirely exotic, maybe we should sort of tie it to a period of China's history where uh, there was this kind of spirit that that dominated of, you know, kind of a fetishization almost of things that were exotic and foreign, uh, where, you know, there was an attitude that was quite pervasive, at least within the elite, of cosmopolitanism. You know, I had studied my Chinese history, so I knew that the Tang was just such a time. And I knew that I could sort of sell this idea that the Tang was great precisely because it was cosmopolitan because it did embrace so many things. I mean, I, I had read this book when I was in, in college called The Golden Peaches of Samarkand, uh, which is written by this professor named Edward Schaefer. And it's it's an amazing book. It's really, it's beautifully written. And it's it's a study of Tang exotics. It just looks at Tang material culture uh, with a focus on those things that were exotic, right? Uh, so... It's it's a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. And so that's that's where the idea sort of came from. And I also knew that we were in this period of reform and opening where the official line was that China was once again sort of opening up to the rest of the world, where it was once again sort of fashionable to look toward things from outside of China. And I thought that, that would, it would resonate with, uh, with people who were going through that at the moment. And now to blast off back to the earlier Tang Dynasty and Xuanzang's effort to bring texts from outside of China into China. Max Mormon describes a monk whose record of an actual journey provided an object of contemplation for imaginative and religious purposes, as is the case with a Japanese map based on Xuanzang's journey. The map has a life of its own. It's based on a text, so it's an entirely literary map, right? It's a map of a text, but it's a text of a geographical 
itinerary. The actual travels that Xuanzang did and recorded in great detail, you know, exactly what distance he went in which direction for how far and when he got to this and then he did that and then he describes each and every kingdom and and the topography along the way and all that sort of stuff every single detail like that is visualized in the map so it's this translation of the textual to the visual and then that visual object which is also a textual object because it has text inscribed all over it it's a textual and visual object that becomes an object of study, but also an object of devotion in Japan for Buddhists in Japan who themselves could never make the physical journey to Buddhist India. The Japanese Buddhists traveled to China and Chinese Buddhists traveled to India, but no Japanese Buddhist ever went to India before the late 19th century. So it becomes a kind of guide to a sort of literary pilgrimage it was used as a kind of object for visualization. I mean, it's the same format and style as other kinds of Japanese Buddhist paintings that are used in ritual and meditative contexts. So it's a kind of contemplative object. So in that sense, it's Xuanzang's physical journey that becomes an image that makes possible the internal journeys, the imaginary journeys, the literary journeys, the visionary journeys of Japanese Buddhists who could not make that physical journey. What is it about Xuanzang's journey that lends itself to meditative contemplation? There is a famous 12th century Buddhist monk from Japan named Myoe who had wanted to go on pilgrimage to India. He wrote, uh, studying the sacred teachings, I understand that the I understand the Buddha's essence, but when I encounter difficulties and obstacles in carrying out religious practice, I long for the Buddha's sacred traces in India, or Tenjiku, which is the Japanese word for that, and the Western regions. In the past, Xuanzang set out on foot to visit those places. People say that India is far away and that I will not necessarily reach it. Even if the road is treacherous, even if I die, I should have no fear from that. I must face India and start walking with my will set on visiting the sacred traces, Shakyamuni. So for Monks in 12th century Japan, Xuanzang, a monk in 7th century China, becomes the model for this pilgrim who actually went and made physical contact with the physical traces of the Buddha in India. And I think reading Xuanzang's text for Japanese monks and probably monks throughout pre-modern East Asia became a way of experiencing that journey in a textual form. Xiaofei Tian explains how Buddhism more broadly changed the course of Chinese literature. Buddhism kind of came into China in a 
the first century CE, so fairly early on in the tradition, you can see literary forms in which you can find,、um, you know, great deal of Buddhist、uh, influence. And later on in the in the Tang Dynasty, in the high, you know, medieval period, seventh, eighth, ninth centuries, you begin to see actually much longer, more elaborate, you know, stories. And in those very elaborate, you know, stories, almost very close to the kind of Form of short story, and you really see very again strong Buddhist, you know, influence. When Buddhism came in, on the one side, you you have、um, reincarnation. That's a kind of a new thing. With reincarnation, it also. Comes with the idea of a karmic relationship, you know, cause and effect. With reincarnation, with karma, death is definitely not the end of the story. I think it also sometimes creates some、uh, interesting problems for the,、um, you know, the native Chinese beliefs. You know, for example, like、uh, filial piety is very important in native Chinese tradition. What if once grandfather comes back in life and you know reincar reincarnates as A once、um, offspring or a nephew, or sometimes if they didn't do good deeds in their life, maybe they come back as an animal. And the actually also compassion for all sentient beings in Buddhist belief, I think, is also a very very good and healthy kind of a dose of、uh, you know new idea for the Chinese tradition. Because Confucian texts always teach that human beings are the most important. And so in the in the Tang Dynasty, Wan Dufu, the the you know again the arguably you know the greatest poet, you know, so he wrote a poem in the、um, uh, late eighth century. In that poem, Dufu imagines that on the top of a mountain,、uh, he passes by. There are some hungry phoenix chicks. So the poet has this kind of fantasy, and he desires to give his body to the starving phoenix chicks. And he literally says in the poem that I I want them to feed on my heart and drink my blood, and that is unthinkable in native Chinese thought. If you really follow the strictly Confucian ideas, not only because it's unthinkable to sacrifice one's life for a bird, you know, even if it's a mythical bird like a phoenix, but also because Confucian texts very much emphasize filial piety, and since. One receives one's physical body from one's parents. One should never harm one's physical body. You know, Buddha was famously、uh, his many many lives. You know, of Buddha, Buddha often sacrificed his physical body. And so, the one of the famous stories is that、um, he would sacrifice his limbs to feed a hungry tiger. So you can see that this this kind of idea of um, um, self sacrifice and also compassion for all sentient beings, include animals. Here's Max Mormon with the historical overview of China's colliding spiritual traditions, which run through Journey to the West. Historically, in China, Taoist and Buddhist traditions were deeply intertwined. One of the guiding intellectual models that's Carried out throughout Journey to the West is the model of the three traditions as one of what we think of as distinctive, discrete traditions of Buddhism, Taoism, and Confucianism, all being one tradition. So they're all woven together. They're all kind of equated, unified 
and correspondences are identified between them. You know, this thing in the Taoist tradition is the same as this thing in the Buddhist tradition is the same as this thing in the in the Confucian tradition. They're just sort of different terms for the same thing or different ways of expressing the same thing. That intellectual and religious movement, which was extremely popular at the time that this text, Journey to the West, came together, is part of the text. And often, you know, the message of the text, when the text wants to make some sort of explicit religious message, it's it's often along those lines. For the text itself, the unification or the oneness of those three traditions is, is very much its story. And that story reflects the historical reality of the ways in which these three traditions coexisted and were integrated in the lives of Chinese people and even Chinese intellectuals, especially Chinese intellectuals in the medieval and early modern period. That's not to say there weren't conflicts between them. Journey to the West has fun with those too, right? With these sort of battles between the Buddhists and the Taoists in which they're trying to outdo each other with their supernatural magic tricks and, uh, you know, and gain the favor of a of a king or a leader, which is, of course, was also what happened in Chinese history. I was talking with Kaiser Guo about how Journey to the West relates to cosmopolitanism. What does its story of the Monkey King's wide-ranging rambunctiousness mean in light of the book's reactions that would shut down that cosmic rambunctiousness? I mean, that's a question that's still on my mind. Anyway, here's what Kaiser Guo said in our conversation on Journey to the West and cosmopolitanism. At one level, right, the very idea that one needs to leave China in search of a truth that, that it resides outside of China. There is an obvious, you know, cosmopolitan element to that, right? The sutras that, that you know, the, the, our little, our heroes go out to find, they're not in China, right? They're, they're in India. They need to make this, this journey to the West to bring them back. But at the same time, right, I mean, it's, it's, it's an irreducibly Chinese story. So I don't, I don't know, you know, there's, Sure, there's an element of, of, yeah, sure, authoritarianism in it or whatever. But um, I, I feel like, if I may, I mean, after all, you are inviting me to go off on tangents. I'm kind of heartily sick of this story being the only goddamn thing China has to offer to the rest of the world. <laughs> I mean, every it feels like, you know, every time somebody talks about, you know, popularizing something from Chinese culture, it's got to be the fucking monkey king again and again and again <laughs> it's like come on and you know, the story okay sure you can look at it as like oh yes these are like the freudian archetypes you know each one of these characters represents you can look at it in all sorts of ways i suppose but in the end it's a re- in an incredibly repetitive story right during you know the setup is great you know sure the steals these peaches of immortality makes havoc in heaven you know the the jingle bong sticks like all that stuff that's all great this golden circlet around his head but the stories themselves the little you know uh the little vignettes that make it up they're all the same it's like they encounter the white bone demon. The white bone demon is disguised as a you know somebody in distress or some wretched, impoverished person on whom you know Tang Hezong takes pity, right? And always bamboozled by this. But you know our our hero, the Monkey King, you know Sun Wukong, sees through it, and it proves that his cynical take was 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 correct all along, right? 
and then yeah so you have you know it's just <laughs> it's the same damn story again and again right i mean and that is not exactly one by the way that that speaks to like sort of yay authoritarianism it's more like yay rebel guy you know the in dungeons and dragons terminology you know you got this lawful good monk and then you have this chaotic good monkey right uh, who's very you know use the expression of of ideas that are not usually associated with sort of chinese authoritarianism Thank you for listening to The Cosmic Library. And once again, I want to ask you to subscribe to our newsletter, cosmiclibrary.substack.com. It'll deliver to your email inbox fairly regularly these little portals into the realm of our infinity books. Our guests this time have included Julia Lovell, whose Journey to the West translation is titled Monkey King, D. Max Mormon, scholar of Buddhism at Columbia, Xiaofei Tian, scholar of Chinese literature at Harvard, and Kaiser Guo, who hosts the Seneca podcast. Thank you, as always, to LitHub. I'm Adam Coleman. Be sure to come back for the next installment on the mixed moods in Journey to the West. <laughs>